Revelation chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. When you think of Jesus, what do you picture? When you think on the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the picture that comes to mind? You might picture him walking on the water and calling Peter out to walk with him. You might picture him praying over five loaves and two fish and feeding 5,000. You might picture him healing the sick, mending the lame. You might picture him on the side of a mountain delivering the Sermon on the Mount or teaching his disciples in a hideaway. Maybe, maybe you picture him delivering the Lord's Supper in the upper room. Maybe you picture him carrying a cross, dying on the cross and breathing his last. When we envision Jesus, we typically think of him as that carpenter. An image comes to our mind of a shepherd holding a lamb. We picture in our minds a teacher, maybe a prophet. The picture that comes to mind often is that of the suffering servant. And while this is an accurate picture of Jesus, it was only a picture of him for 33 years of what is an eternal God. But these are the stories that we read about Jesus most often, and so these are the images that come to mind for us. Either that, or that of some mild-mannered and meek guy with long flowing hair and pearly white teeth. Sometimes we have in our minds a domesticated Jesus. And a domesticated Jesus, a vision of him domesticated, is, is not a very comforting thought when what we need is a warrior. And what we need is a judge and a king. The picture that we get in this passage, in this morning's passage in Revelation 1, is a much different picture than that which we typically have in our mind. Not that of the meek and humble suffering servant, but that of a sovereign king of glory. That's the picture that we have in this passage of Scripture. Last week we started our study going through the book of Revelation We were introduced to its author, the Apostle John. We were introduced to its original audience, the seven churches that are there in Asia Minor. We saw what kind of genre of literature this was, that it was both a letter as well as prophecy, but it was also part of that genre of literature called the apocalyptic, that that genre that included strange and fantastic symbols that represent something to us. But we also discussed the purpose of this book. And I want to be reminded of that this week. 
that the purpose of this book is twofold. The edification of the, the church and the worship of God. But how it accomplishes those two purposes is of critical importance to us this morning as we, and as we make our way through this book. How does this book edify the church? It does so by exhorting the church to persevere through times of trial and, and trouble and suffering and persecution. And preparing the church for the return of Christ. And it accomplishes the worship of God as the church does those two things. As the church perseveres through trial and suffering. And as the church prepares for the return of her king. It's going to be important as we make our way through this book. And even this morning to keep those two purposes in mind. Because... Out of the purpose of the book will flow the application of the book. How this book and how this passage this morning will be applied to your life and my life and the life of our church even is dependent on the reason why we were given this book. And so hold on to those two purposes and we'll return to them in the end. We're in Revelation chapter 1 looking at verses 9 through 20, through the end of the chapter. Church, let's hear the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and King, thank you so much for the privilege this morning to gather together as your people and to come before your throne and worship you 
We continue in that spirit of worship now as we turn to your precious word. Thank you so much for the gift of this book. Thank you for preserving it throughout the ages so that we know that what we hold in our hands to be your very breath. Speak to us from it, Lord. Edify and encourage and build up your church this morning as we behold your son, the King, the God of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So verses 9 through 20 can be divided into three sections. I want to unpack each of these sections for us this morning, paying particular attention to the second one. The first section is verses 9 through 11, which gives us kind of the setting in which the vision is given. And in this setting, Jesus commissions John to write this letter. In the middle section, the one that we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this morning, in verses 12 through 16, we're given the actual vision of Jesus, the King of glory. And then in verses 17 through 20, we have the aftermath of the vision and the explanation of some of the key elements of it by Jesus to John. So in verse 9, the author reintroduces himself again as John. I, John, your brother and partner. This again is the apostle John. He wrote John's gospel. He wrote the three letters, first, second, and third John. But what we note here at the outset is he doesn't elevate himself over his readers. And, and, and if anyone had the right to, he did. I mean, after all, this is John. This is it's one of the guys that Jesus chose to be his followers. He was part of the inner circle of James, Peter, and John. He was an apostle of the church. And, and, and he was self-declaring himself in this passage to be a prophet, or at least one who is delivering the prophecy of this letter. And yet, he calls himself their brother and partner. He's on their level. He's not elevating himself. So this is a side note. This, this part's for free. No charge for this, right? What we see in this passage, church, is John receiving a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you see that, you're not going to walk away elevating yourself. You're going to walk away elevating Christ and humbling yourself. And whenever we see a Christian leader who seems to be very impressed with himself, it's very likely that they have not spent much time beholding the glory of Christ. Like Isaiah, who in the chapter, Isaiah 6, that we read from earlier, is given this vision of the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple, and the six seraphim with their wings singing, Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah walks away from that vision saying, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was humbled by the vision of God's glory in that throne room vision. So here, John, he has this vision of the glorious king. 
And he doesn't come away from this saying, hey, churches, I'm an apostle. You should listen to me. No, he says, I, John, your brother and partner. Partner in what? He mentions three things here. Your partner in the tribulation, your partner in the kingdom, and your partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. First of all, the tribulation. The word tribulation means a time of trial and trouble and suffering. But he's not talking here about a time of future tribulation. I do believe that he's going to tell us about a time of future tribulation later in this book. But that's not what he's referring to here. Because he says, I am your brother and your partner, present tense, in the tribulation. So he's referring to a present time of suffering and tribulation. So this is a reference to the time of of suffering and persecution that the churches of this day were enduring. Secondly, he he calls himself your partner in the kingdom, referring to the kingdom of God. That kingdom that had been inaugurated by Jesus when he himself said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so as we'll see over and over, this kingdom is both present as well as future because it is a kingdom that is both now as well as not yet. It's at hand. It's been inaugurated. And so it is now. The reign and rule of Christ is now. It's at hand. But it is clearly not yet fully completed. And there is a consummation of the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ that is yet to come. And John says, I'm a, I'm a partner with you in this kingdom. Similar to us saying to one another that we're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God that is both now and not yet. And then thirdly, he says, I'm your partner in the patient endurance. That is the patiently enduring this tribulation, this time of present trial and suffering. But all three of these are said to be in Jesus, which is the New Testament phrase referring to our union with Christ. That we're united to Christ by faith. And our, our union with Christ through faith in Him is something in which we share both in the sufferings of Christ as well as the reign of Christ in His kingdom. We've never promised in this life a life that's free from suffering, a life that is free from trouble and trial. But in fact, we're told in Scripture that the way of following Christ is the way of suffering. We're sharing in those sufferings together. As Luke records in Acts 14, verse 22, that Paul and Barnabas spent their time Going around to the various churches, it's said of them that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is part and parcel to living with Jesus and following Jesus. And it's interesting to note that when we begin into the seven letters next week, in chapters 2 and 3, in Almost every single one of them, except for the possible exception of the letter to the church at Laodicea, every single one of them, Jesus refers to their time of suffering and trial that requires patient endurance. 
And John says, I'm a partner with you in all of that. So John identifies himself here at the outset as a as a fellow sufferer with them, but then he begins to get specific about his particular kind of suffering. He says in verse, at the end of verse 9, I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We mentioned this island last week. It was, it's an island in the Aegean Sea between Greece and Asia Minor. And it was essentially a prison camp. And so John was exiled there. He was imprisoned there. Not because he was a criminal, but because he refused to recant in the gospel. He refused to recant in his belief that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And so he was paying the price by suffering this tribulation of exile. And so the mention of the island here brings us to the setting of the vision that John is given here on this island. And he says it's on the Lord's day, which is a reference to Sunday, the first day of of the week. This day became the day that the early church celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that was the day that Jesus rose on the third day, the first day of the week. And so that day became known as the Lord's Day. John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That phrase, in the Spirit, in the New Testament typically refers to our position in Christ, that we're in Christ, that in other words, we're his by faith, that we belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Or it refers to us being in alignment with the word of God and with the spirit of God. But John here uses this phrase in a way that's much more reminiscent of how the Old Testament prophets use this phrase, particularly the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel and the like. For example, when Ezekiel is given the familiar vision of the valley of dry bones, we're told in Ezekiel chapter 37 that the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And then we go on and we see that, that God breathes life into these bones. Well, this was, this was a vision from God. So when, when Ezekiel said, he took me out in the spirit of the Lord, he's referring to a vision that God gave him, this dreamlike trance in which God delivered a vision to Ezekiel. And John is using the phrase in the same way, just like Ezekiel did. It means that he was given a vision by God, this dreamlike trance that he was set in. And so this is the first of four, at least four distinct visions that God, that Jesus gives to, um, to John in the book of Revelation. And this one is the shortest, but in my estimation, it's the easiest to read. It's the easiest to understand and interpret. And it is, again, in my estimation, the most glorious because it gives us the vision of Jesus, the King of glory. So first, we're told that he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. It doesn't mean that he heard a trumpet. We don't interpret that literally, but he hears a voice. And the voice was like that of a trumpet. It was strong and it was clear. This wasn't a whisper. This wasn't a muttering. This was a loud voice that was crystal clear like the sound of a trumpet, he says. That's how he describes it. So what did this voice say? Look at verse 11. Write what you see in a book, literally a scroll, 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I happen to believe that this is the, this is the voice of Jesus speaking to John here in this vision. We're not told whose voice this is here, but I believe it to be the voice of Jesus. And apparently the English translators agree with us because these are in red letters if you have a red letter Bible. So this is the voice of Jesus. And Jesus here commissions John to write down what he sees. Write down what you see in this vision, put it on a scroll, and send that scroll to the seven churches. And as we said last week, this is Jesus commissioning John not just to write the seven letters that we find in chapters 2 and 3, but this is him commissioning John to write the entire book of Revelation to these churches. And so John receives the commission by this loud voice that sounds like a trumpet. But since he's heard this loud voice that sounds like a trumpet, he does what we would all do, and that is he turns around to see who belongs to this voice that sounds like a trumpet. And what does he see? He sees Jesus. So what we have here is this vision, this description of Jesus in verse 12 and following. Verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, as we read earlier, later in verse 20, Jesus um, interprets a couple of pieces of this vision for John. And he interprets the lampstands here, the seven lampstands, he, he says, are the seven churches. And so the lampstands in this vision refer to the churches, the seven churches listed there in Asia Minor, but also by way of cons- consequence, our church today as well. Every church of every age. Now, this imagery of a lampstand is an allusion to the lampstands that we find in the Old Testament. You'll recall that in the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was a golden lampstand in the holy place. Right before you went into the Holy of Holies, where was the Ark of the Covenant? And the holy place right outside of that was a golden lampstand. It was the only light in that room, the only thing that gave light there. Later, through the prophet Zechariah, we're told that uh, there's a prophecy that is given through a vision of a golden lampstand. It's a lamp with seven lamps. It's a lampstand with seven lamps. It's um, familiar to us um, by looking at the Jewish menorah, which is kind of the symbolic of the Jewish faith today. A lampstand with seven lamps. And this lampstand in Zechariah represents the light of Israel, that Israel would be a light to the nations. That's what that lampstand in that prophecy stood for. And Jesus tells us here in this vision to John, as he interprets it, that this lampstand represents the New Testament church. So that which in Zechariah's vision referred to the light of Israel now refers to the light of the New Testament church. I think this is one of the examples of the New Testament church being an extension or a continuation, if you will, of the nation of Israel of the Old Testament. But then in verse 13, John says that in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. One like a son of man. So this is Jesus. And he goes on to describe as best as he can in this apocalyptic vision that he is given 
the glory of Jesus. The language that is used here in John's vision to describe his vision of Jesus and what he sees in this vision comes from, a lot of it comes from Daniel 7. A lot of the language is borrowed from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, he's, he's prophesying about the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is God. The Ancient of Days is Yahweh. And, and a lot of what he says there is reminiscent of what we see here in Revelation chapter 1. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Daniel chapter 7, we're told that the Ancient of Days has clothing as white as snow and that the hair of his head like pure wool. Well, we see here in Revelation 1, that with the Son of Man, his, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Very reminiscent of that Old Testament imagery. Also in Daniel 7, we're told that the Ancient of Days, his throne was, was like fiery flames. Its wheels were burning, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And of course, we're told here that of the Son of Man, his eyes were like a flame of fire. So what we have here is the language that is referring to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, which we know to be God himself, Yahweh, here is referring to the Son of Man, which is Jesus. And there is no escaping the fact that John's vision here in this case is reinforcing the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not just a man, that he is in fact God. That there is no stark line of demarcation between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man who is Jesus Christ. He is God. He is God the Son, but he is God nonetheless. And the picture of Jesus that John is given in this vision is a picture of Jesus as the sovereign God, as the the ruler of the universe, the righteous judge of all mankind, the all-powerful warrior who defeats all of his enemies and ushers in the consummation of the ages. Now, this apocalyptic vision that we're going to look at has all kinds of Old Testament imagery, as we've noted in part from Daniel 7, but also elsewhere. And there are eight distinct aspects of this vision that I want us to draw our attention to and see what they might represent to us about Jesus. But here's the caution. I want to caution us to refrain from the temptation of trying to draw a picture in our mind of Jesus. That's not the intent here. We're not intended to walk away from this with a picture of what Jesus looks like, but rather with a greater understanding of who Jesus is. And so seek to understand the character and the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ as we see how John attempts with the English human language to, or with the Hebrew in his case, but in our English translation to to come up with a human way of describing this apocalyptic vision, this supernatural vision that is before him, that of the Son of Man. So first of all, we see the long robe and the golden sash. In verse 13, we're told that he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is reminiscent 
of the priestly vestments that we see of the high priests and the Levitical priests in the book of Exodus and elsewhere. And the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus, of course, our great high priest who interceded for us by going to the cross and giving up his life for us and rising from the dead in our place. And so this refers to him as our priest. But, but a lot of commentators also note that long robes and uh, sashes across the chest were, were common to dignitaries and VIPs and rulers of that day. The common folk would wear a sash around the waist so that they could tuck in their tunic in order to do work. But the dignitaries and the rulers and the VIPs wore the sash around the chest. And so this symbolizes Jesus' priestly role, but it also represents the fact that he is a dignitary. He is a ruler. He is not common to us, and he is to be revered. Secondly, we see his white head and hair. We're told that it's like wool and that it's like snow. We saw here earlier an allusion to the picture of the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7. But elsewhere in the book of Leviticus and also in the book of Proverbs, white hair is seen as a reference to wisdom and to dignity. And so this builds here on the dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also his omniscient wisdom as the sovereign Lord. Next, we see his blazing eyes in verse 14. We're told that his eyes were like a flame of fire. In Daniel chapter 10, the vision of Christ is described as having eyes that were like flaming torches. These blazing eyes that are like flames of fire represent the divine insight of God into penetrating to the very core of the human heart. Seeing not just what we do in our actions, but but what we think about, and even what's in our heart. And so this is representative to us of the fierce judgment of God, who knows through these eyes of flaming fire that penetrate to our core, who knows not only what we do, but what we think and even the motives of our heart, and executes judgment for sin on those who disobey him. And rebel against him. And so this is Christ, the righteous judge of all the earth, who executes perfect justice with his eyes of flaming fire. Next, we look at his feet in verse 15. We're told that his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Now, this is a difficult symbol to interpret precisely. Bronze as an alloy of copper would have had a local familiarity to it, to his original readers, because there was a bronze guild in the city of Thyatira. And it was used for both military purposes as well as coinage. They'd make coins out of it. Bronze was stronger than, a stronger metal than tin or or copper. And so this is at least partly a symbol of Jesus' strength. But John refers here to the fact that this bronze is burnished. That is, it is polished such that its sheen and brilliance comes to life. And so this is also a reference to Jesus' glory and his brilliance, not unlike the 
brilliance that we will see of his face later in verse 16. And this bronze is also referred to as being refined in a furnace. In fact, the New American Standard translates this verse, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been heated to a glow in a furnace. You see, just as with gold, when copper is smelted, the impurities are separated. And so this is a reference to uh, the purity of Jesus as well. And so we see in, in these, the, the feet that were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, we see the strength of Christ, we see the purity of Christ, and we see the glory of Christ hinted at. And then he, he refers in verse 15 to his voice. He says, his voice was like the roar of many waters. And so there's this powerful voice that he hears. This too is an illusion drawn from the Old Testament. Again, back to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24, the prophet is describing there the sound of the living creatures as they began to fly away with their wings and were told that the sound of their wings was like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty. So the sound of the Almighty to Ezekiel was like the sound of many waters. That's what to which he referred the sound of the wings of the living creatures. Then again later in Ezekiel chapter 43, we're told, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And so already the voice of Jesus was likened unto that of a trumpet, but now it's likened to that of the roar of many waters. I don't know if you've ever stood at the base of a great waterfall, not a babbling brook, but a great waterfall like Niagara or something of that nature. The sound of the water crashing below is so overpowering that you can't hear yourself scream. It is absolutely overwhelming and strong and unavoidable. Thus is the voice of King Jesus, the King of glory. It's not a gentle whisper. It's like a trumpet. It's, it's loud and it's crystal clear, but it's also like the roar of many waters. Powerful, overwhelming, overpowering, unavoidable, that shudders you to your core. This is the voice of Jesus then he looks at his right hand and he sees that he's holding seven stars there in verse 16. And he's holding them in his right hand. The right hand in scripture is always symbolic of power and authority. Psalm 110 verse 1, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It is a position of power and authority. And the fact that he's holding the stars in his right hand, connotes possession and control and authority, which tells us that the stars are his. He's holding them in his right hand. The stars belong to him, and they do what he tells them to do. They do his bidding. Now again, in verse 20, Jesus interprets a couple of these images for us. One, we related earlier, the lampstands are the seven churches, but Jesus also interprets the stars. He says the stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. So who are these seven angels? 
For years, you might have heard this interpretation. One of the more popular interpretations was that these seven angels are the senior pastors of those seven churches. That was one of the interpretations that was very popular. And I understand where that comes from. Uh, Because the word angel in the Greek, angelos, the word angelos simply means messenger. And in that sense, the the senior pastor was seen as the messenger to those churches. And so that is what they represented. But a couple of big problems with that interpretation. Maybe three problems. The first is, I am no angel. And uh, all of the senior pastors that I know, none of them are angels either. But nowhere in the New Testament are pastors and elders referred to as angels even symbolically. And so I find it very hard to believe that that's what it refers to here. But thirdly and most importantly, this interpretation of them being senior pastors and referring to real people seems to only come from a fundamental denial of the supernatural. How else, what else would we think that these seven angels are? Why, why would we think that these seven angels are anything other than seven angels? Seven angelic beings. In Daniel chapter 10, we're told that, that there are angels that correspond to every country. Why not believe that there are angels that correspond to every church? Now, it may be that it's not a one-to-one ratio, one angel for every church. Perhaps the number seven here is symbolic. It's symbolic of wholeness and completeness, like the seven that we saw in verses one through eight last week, referring to the seven spirits who are before the throne, referring to the one Holy Spirit. But I think it is noteworthy here that these seven angels refer to seven physical, historical churches. And that there are seven churches that correspond, excuse me, seven angels that correspond to them. Regardless of how many, it's clear that these angels are God's provision in some way for these churches. So we should be reminded here, church, that something is going on outside of the realm of sight and touch that is nonetheless very, very real. It doesn't mean that we erect some full, complete theology of angels. It doesn't mean that we pray to angels or anything of the sort. But the testimony of Scripture is clear that there are both good and evil beings that are operating somehow, even now. This is why Paul said at the end of the book of Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, and he's not talking about people, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Somehow, these churches are God's provi- these angels are God's provision for these churches. One more thing I want to note about these angels before we move on. It appears to me here that God's message here in the book of Revelation is mediated by the Apostle John to both the churches and to the angels. It's a message to both of them. 
In verse 11, Jesus tells John, write what you see in a book and send it to whom? Send it to the churches. But look at the first verse of chapter 2. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. And then again in verse 8, again in verse 12, again in verse 18, and for all of them. To the angel of that church, write. So the letter, the message, the the vision of the book of Revelation is mediated by John to both the angels in a heavenly realm and to the churches in an earthly realm. Now I don't really understand why Jesus wants this message to be delivered to the angels. We're not told in Scripture as to why. Perhaps this means that the message that's given to these churches is the instruction that God has, that Jesus has for those churches, and that the message is also written to the angels of those churches so that they would be informed as to what Jesus' plan was with those churches. But whatever the case is, the bottom line here, the picture that we have is that they're in Jesus' right hand. Whatever they are, whatever they represent, they're his. They belong to him. And they do his bidding. And he sends them out to accomplish his will. And so we are meant to behold the majesty and authority of King Jesus even over angelic beings. Also in verse 16, we see the sword coming out of his mouth We're told that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Again, this is Old Testament imagery, this time from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, uh, he's talking about the root of Jesse, which is Jesus. And we're told that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So this has to do with judgment. In Isaiah chapter 49, the suffering servant himself speaks about God, about Yahweh, and says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. So sword in Scripture is symbolic of judgment. And so Jesus is portrayed here as the righteous judge before whom the whole earth will be exposed. And who will escape this justice? Who will escape this terrible judgment At the hand of this one from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Because none are guiltless. Only those who come to faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later will escape this righteous judgment. And this theme of just and righteous judgment will continue all the way throughout this book of Revelation And so we see Jesus, the righteous and perfect judge here, executing judgment for sin. And then finally, we see the radiant face of Jesus at the end of verse 16. John says, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This picture here is reminiscent of Moses, isn't it, in the book of Exodus when he comes down from the mountain after having spoken with God And he has to wear a veil over his face so that he can speak with Aaron and the people because 
He's got the Shekinah glory of God all over him and none can behold it. And friends, that is just a reflection of the tail end of the glory of God. And here, John gets a vision of the unfailed vase of the King of glory, the Lord Jesus. And the best way that he knows how to describe it is that it is like the sun shining in full strength. What a vision. This is a vision of the glory of Christ. What is, what is God's glory? We talk here a lot about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the sum total of all of his attributes. The sum total of all that he is made manifest. His holiness, his love, his justice, his eminence, his transcendence, his immutability made visible. That is the glory of God. And John says, it is like the sun shining in full strength. Imagine that. Imagine that. Coming face to face with the brightness of our sun. The star closest to the earth. That if it were to come down and stand in front of you and I. And we were to hold the, withhold the, uh, behold the brilliance and the brightness of this sun. That's the best way. Given the human language that, that John has to describe the glory of Jesus. Behold the glory of Jesus. Don't try to come up with a picture of him here. When we try to come up with a picture of this, try to draw a picture of this, it seems fantastic and almost silly. This is why pictures of Jesus are so inadequate. We're not meant to draw a picture of this. We're meant to see what it represents. That Jesus is the mighty king of glory. That he is the righteous judge of the universe who rules and reigns with wisdom and power and glory. And what does John do at the sight of this king of glory? He says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John falls prostrate. In fear, there is an element of worship here as he falls prostrate, but also that of abject fear. And friends, so would you and I. But what does Jesus do? He laid his hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. Referring to his eternality. Jesus said in verse 8 from last week, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the ends. Reminiscent of when John wrote his gospel. And he said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus has no beginning. He is the beginning. And he has no end. He is that too. He is eternal. He is everlasting. 
the first and the last. And he goes on to say in verse 18, and I am the living one. Praise God. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, referring to his resurrection. He is alive at this point. And standing in front of John, I am alive forevermore. And he says, I have the keys of death in Hades through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave three days later. He has defeated sin and death and now holds the keys of death and Hades. Hades being the realm of death. In other words, if you want to escape out of death and Hades, the only way is through faith in Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so John is then finally commissioned again to write these things down in verse 19. John's first commission to write was in verse 11 as we saw earlier. Jesus says, write down what you see in a scroll and send it to the seven churches. Here, that commission is expanded in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after, after this. So this tells us that there is a, <clears throat> a past, present, and future sense of fulfillment to these visions that John is given in the book of Revelation. Now, some see here somewhat of an outline of the book. What you have seen refers to the vision of this chapter that's already been given. The things that are, the things that you see now, are the seven letters coming up in chapters 2 and 3. And then that which will take place after is the rest of the book uh, being a future orientation to the rest of the book. But I don't see a clear distinction here between the past, the present, and the future sense of these sections. In reality, um, as we look at this book in total, and as as we'll see as we walk through it, there is, for example, plenty of past fulfillment in the letters to the churches. And we'll also see plenty of past and present fulfillment in the remainder of the book, chapters 4 through 12. And so I think it's best to simply state that verse 19 reminds us that some of this apocalyptic language has fulfillment in the past, some of it has fulfillment in the present, and some of it, some of it, friend, has fulfillment in the eschatological future of the end that is to come. And this is something that I hope to be able to draw out as we walk our way through these visions in this book. But what we have this morning in this passage is a vision of King Jesus, a vision of the King of glory. Remember what we said the purpose of this book is. It is to edify the church by exhorting the church to persevere in times of trial and trouble and persecution and suffering and to prepare that church for the return of Jesus. So how does this vision do that? What vision brings you encouragement in a time of suffering? 
What picture of Jesus brings you comfort and encouragement when you're facing trials or when you're facing discouragement or persecution even? I would submit to you not a picture of a domesticated Jesus. But surely this vision of Jesus would. Surely this vision of the king, the victorious one, the righteous one, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and the reminder that this is the king who's coming back. Church, this is the Jesus that promises to build his church such that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the Jesus that that, that promises his children that he will always be with them and never forsake them. This is the Jesus that is our brother, that is our co-heir in the faith. This is our Jesus who is on our side in the battle against sin. And this is the Jesus of whom Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? May we live in light of this vision of Jesus. And the question that I want us to close with is, does the sight of this Jesus cause you to fall down in worship or in fear? It's one or the other. We're told that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So does this vision, as you see it, as you behold it, as you encounter it, does it lead you in your spirit to fall down in worship or to fall down in fear? Do you know this Jesus as Lord or do you just know him as a character in a book? Have you trusted in him to rescue you from the judgment that you deserve for your sin or are you the object of his judgment to come? Friend, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that we all deserve because of our rebellion against God, then this vision ought, ought to bring about a sense of abject fear. But Christ has come. This is not just the one who promises the church that he will build it and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. This is not just the one who promised to always be with us. This is the one who came and died for us in order to rescue sinners like us from the judgment we deserve. So the answer for you, friend, is to trust in Christ alone. Trust in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later as your only and yet sufficient hope to be delivered from what you deserve. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross and turn from your sin and your self-rule and trust in Christ and his rule over you. He is the king of glory. He deserves to be worshiped by you. He will transform you from a sinner to a saint, from an enemy of God into a child of God, one who fulfills the purpose for which we were all made, which is to bring glory to the king of glory. I pray that you would give your Faith, put your faith in Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray uh, for that person within the hearing of my voice, whether they're in this room or at home, that recognizes, Father, by your grace that
that they stand outside the family of God. They might have been trying to live their life in such a way as to please you. They might have been going through the religious motions of trying to be a good person, but they never placed their faith in Jesus alone. God, would you, in your grace and in your mercy, give that person the faith, the trust in your son as their only hope. Bring them across the line of faith. Bring them into the family of God. Give them new life in Christ and turn them into a worshiper of you so that you might be glorified through them. Father, help us. Help us as your people, help us as your church to live a life in view of this vision of our King of glory. Thank you so much that that is the true picture of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.